Welcome to a very upbeat and happy Trojan Talk podcast today. I'm Ryan Young, as always, joined by my familiar co-host, former USC quarterback, the Trojans analyst, our Trojansports.com analyst, and we will soon have things to analyze. Max Brown in the show. Max, how are you? We've still got a lot of things to analyze, even though it might not be uh, on-field stuff. A lot going Almost. on. B- busy, uh, busy week for the Pac-12 and USC, but uh, no, pumped to be here. Thanks for having me on. Pac-12 football is back. Almost. Almost. We're almost there. Almost. We're, if we talk next week, it might be a different story. Actually, shoot. No, 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 Could be a matter no, of a no, no, couple no. days. No, no, no. no, no, no. All right. Let's, let we, let's get into it. Real quick, for those who have not been following, we've been all over the developments this week on Trojansports.com. If you are not subscribed, you can get in with a free trial for the rest of the month. It's promo code USCFREE2020. USCFREE2020. 2020 free trial there's been some really fun discussion on the message board uh so if you're a usc fan and you're excited and uh, in disbelief that the season's actually probably going to happen now join our conversation max let me just uh we're going to get in through the timeline of what happened this week we're going to cover all the ramifications but let's just start with general reaction what was your reaction yesterday, as and yesterday being Wednesday, as this kind of all came together? General reaction is it's funny how things change quickly. I mean, last time we did the podcast, Ryan, we were talking about the Pac-12 players leading the charge with these claims and wanting protections and wanting to change the game and all that, and or not change the game, but change the the, the behind the scenes deal. And we were analyzing that factor, and then now. Tides kind of turn, and they're saying, hey, wait, we want to play. Help us out. We want to play, for lack of a better term. And uh, funny might not be the right word, but uh, it's just interesting how things change. And right now, it obviously looks like the Pac-12 is is in the wrong, I guess you could say, or they made the wrong decision. I'm not as far in that camp, but uh, it's just interesting interesting to see how things flip. Uh, I don't think we'll know for, honestly, a decade of what the right decision is based on health and whatnot, but... I think it's cool to see guys like Keen Slovis and uh, and Amon Ross St. Brown putting pressure on decision makers to 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 make things happen. But uh, like we talked about, Ryan, the player in me, it was, from the start was saying, "Hey, I want to play. I know COVID serious. I, I know there's some some ramifications, but at the end of the day, the player in me would want to play, whether it was two months ago, whether it was four months ago, whether it was four hours ago." And I think that's finally coming to light. As guys are sitting on their couch and saying, "Damn it, why can't uh, I strap them up and hit someone?" So all all those things, as we'll get into it, are uh, are kind of running through my brain. It's interesting that to you bring up right or wrong decision, and that's such a complex equation to dissect. You know, decisions are best evaluated on the information that was available at the time. I don't personally know that it was the wrong decision because we wouldn't be here right now. And this is an important point. And I think it's a point that was very much missed yesterday. I kind of had a plan for the podcast and I wanted to debunk some, some erroneous reaction later on, but I'm going to hit this right now. People came out yesterday and said, so, so you're telling me that, that all they had to do was put pressure on the, on the governor and this would have happened in August. No, it wouldn't have. Uh, the major driving force in all of this is the testing partnership with Quidel for the rapid response antigen test, which I keep using the term game changer on the message board. That's what it is, where right now USC is testing players twice a week with a significant lag time before those results come back. With this new Quidel partnership, which is conference-wide, every team in the conference can test every player every single day and get results in less than 15 minutes. And that is essential to assuaging all the concerns that existed two months ago. And you wouldn't have been able to change the mind of state and county health officials without that. So, no, you couldn't have just raised hell in August and gotten a season on track. That barrier was still there. That barrier is still presently there because – as far as I know, those testing machines were due to arrive by the end of this month. So until those are actually physically operational, there will not be practices. Now, hopefully it's coming soon and it's here next week or whatever or, or two weeks from now. 
But that was a, such a huge piece of this process. So was it the wrong decision in August? Maybe the wrong decision was to cancel and not just delay. That could be a wrong decision. But I don't think they were in the position to get the clearances they needed then. And I, I, I hate to be positioned as an apologist for, for anyone. I really just try to align myself with information, intel, common sense, what I'm hearing. And, and that's kind of what the story has been. Yeah, I don't think we'll know the right or wrong decision, like I said, for, for a very long time. The whole reason the Pac-12 made this decision, we knew from the start, they were taking a more cautious, protective, long-term approach than the SEC. The SEC was saying, a short term, we want our money, we want our football in the fall of 2020, and we're going to get it kind of approach. The Pac-12 say, hey, we're going to have a longer term mindset. And wherever you stand on COVID and whatnot, however that nets out with you, that was the reality of what happened. And so now, three weeks or two weeks into college football, now everyone's kind of having a little FOMO, right? Of, oh, I want to play, I want to play. But we knew this was the case. That's one thing when I see all this. Nothing is surprising to me, right? What you just said right there, Ryan, is uh, we knew testing was going to be the game changer, like you said. We knew that three months ago. We knew that four months ago, and it's still the game changer now. We knew that the SEC was taking a risk for lack of a better term. And that risk seems to be paying off right now. Pac-12 chose to take a more conservative approach. And we might not know what the right decision is for years right. down the line when those health impacts or the impacts of COVID are more known uh, to what it does to the to the body. So that's one thing that we, we, we get in these pockets of very rash reactions and jumping around. But I'm sitting here saying, like, we knew what we were getting into. The Pac-12 looked at all the factors and made a decision that was a more a more uh, protective decision and they might be losing right now in the fall of 2020 but the long-term impacts we'll see yeah that's so well said you really hit the point there and it's such a hot button topic and everyone just is convinced they know the answer i'm going to tell you i don't know the answer on the long-term effects of this Maybe there are none. Maybe there are severe ones. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to try to assert that I know for sure what the answer is there. But you're right. We're not going to know for a long time. And what we have is we have a conference that took a very cautious approach. And you have USC has had, what, 18 positive tests among student-athletes since June. And that's across six sports. We don't know what the actual breakdown is. We do know that football and men's water polo had to pause workouts for a week and a half when there was nine positives between them. But contrast that with LSU, where Ed Orgeron came out <laughs> exactly. this week and said most of the t- most of our teams had it. I don't even know how many. <laughs> Texas A&M has had uh, or t- Texas Tech, I'm sorry, has had 75 football players test positive according to reports. So if we find out in two years that that yeah, uh, X percentage of people who had COVID-19 are going to have lifelong lung or heart defects, then there's going to be a lot of backlash in that time. If we find out that, uh, no, you, you recover, there's really a minute percentage that will see anything long-term, then we'll say, well, the caution was maybe uh, well-intended but unnecessary. So we'll find out. Again, I'm happy to just be open-minded and, and take everything for what it is. Uh, I'm not trying to defend the Pac-12. I just happened to think that some of the reaction I saw on the last day was misstated because without this testing, uh, which they announced on September 8th and, again, is not even in effect yet, we wouldn't be in the position where they were able to change the minds of health officials in California and Oregon. Now, I will also acknowledge that none of this would have happened if not for the Big Ten making the move first. Yep. And that's just reality. And the reason it's reality, you can frame it any way you want. You can frame it as the Pac-12 is a follower, uh, this and that. The reality is that I thought a winter season would have been viable for the Pac-12 if it was aligned with the Big Ten. And there could have been some form of Rose Bowl-like postseason game between those two conferences. And it wouldn't have been ideal. It would have been far less ideal than being a part of the college football playoff consideration, et cetera. But it could have worked for one year, and you get back on track next year. Once the Big Ten was off that timeline entirely, the Pac-12 was either left to quickly fall in line or quickly be left behind. So, yes, I totally agree that 
we're not here without the Big Ten making the first move. Now, we'll get into the machinations and, and how this all played out, but just one more initial reaction piece. And these are going to be kind of conflicting, contrasting thoughts for me. But it's, it's ironic that a week ago, I was the one on the message board combating people who were saying, there's not going to be any, any Pac-12 season. We're going to be the only conference not playing. And I said, how can you have that opinion? Like, why do you think they invested whatever they invested in this Quidel partnership? It, it wasn't to not play. Like, the entire point of paying whatever they're paying for daily conference-wide tests, which has to be expensive, was to get on the field at some point. So I was always convinced there was going to be a season. I just thought it was going to be in the winter. So I was on that side of things last week. But then I'll, I'll be honest with you. I mean, if you had told me that by the end of the week, the Pac-12 is going to be discussing plans for a fall season, I would have said, you're crazy. So I thought there was going to be a season eventually. I did not think we were ever going to get to the point where they were playing this fall. I'm right with you. Yeah, and uh, I've always been a proponent of, uh, or I guess been in favor of the possibility of a spring season. I mean, I think we talked about it in the last podcast. Some guys are quick to shut that down as not an option. You mentioned winter. I think I'm, I'm right with you. I think winter is possible. And yeah, and I know we're going to get into the scheduling Im- impacts, but your point about the Big Ten leaving, this whole process was a lot easier on the Pac-12 because they had the buddy in the Big Ten, right? And the the, the national perception of the Pac-12 Ten con- or Pac conference, as we know, is that the Pac-12 kind of sits in a notch behind some of these other big conferences. And I I don't necessarily agree with that, but perception is reality on a national landscape in some regard. And this is not a good look for the Pac-12 conference for sure. And I think it helped obviously a lot having the Big Ten kind of with them. But once again, and we talked about this last podcast, is in the summer, I was of the mindset that money was going to trump all. And every conference would find a way to play college football because the money is just so, so, so important. Well, a month ago, we saw the Big Ten and the Pac-12 say, hey, no, health is the most important. We'll take a back seat with some of the, with the, the, the college football revenue. We're going to take a huge hit. Uh, we'll, we'll take a back seat there. Then the Big, uh, Big Ten said, ah, wait a sec college football and money actually does trump all and they kind of gave in and the reality is their commissioners and their presidents they caved they folded under their under the pressure and they uh they, they gave it gave in and they're scrambling to kind of piece together a season and so yeah once again money kind of does trump all but uh yeah very interesting it's, to see it, how, how it plays out well and and these are also things we'll never know it's possible that a winter season if aligned with the Big Ten could have been lucrative, as all of a sudden we, we know that in this country we love football. We love the NFL. We love college football. And if the Pac-12 and Big Ten were the only game in town, so to speak, in January, February, March, you don't think there would have been a pretty hefty TV uh, price tag on that? Or exactly. I don't know how, the, how, how the existing contracts would have worked. But I think they would have been fine financially. This they're not. This is not like some financial windfall now for them because there's not going to be fans in the stands in most places. So it's it's not like it's uh, it's suddenly hitting a jackpot. I think they would have gotten to the same place regardless. Let's kind of get into just just the machinations and how this played out. Just for those who weren't following closely, who who uh, are playing catch up, I'm going to break it all down for you and kind of spell this out. So essentially. Last week and whenever it was, we started to get a real sense that the Big Ten was going to try and find a way to play this fall. There are varied opinions. Uh, people can say it was about money. Uh, I know some people want to give uh, the, the president credit for his comments and intervention. We're not going to get down a political rabbit hole at all here. I will say my perception is that we saw a conference that was revolting from within ever since the cancellation was made. You had very vocal head coaches in Ohio State's Ryan Day, Michigan's Jim Harbaugh, Penn State's James Franklin. You had your major power brokers in the conference not accepting the cancellation of a season. And that's where you can contrast it with the the Pac-12, where a lot of people out this way were excited to see the coaches and the players, Justin Fields, taking these stands and we're seeing a pretty quiet Pac-12. think that that continued pressure from within ultimately got us to this point. And again, same with the Pac-12, and I'm not as well-versed on this with the Big Ten side, but you've seen references to 
they they got the testing upgrades they needed and that was able to assuage whatever obstacles whatever people whatever decision makers were holding out the advanced testing was able to push them over the edge and so again that's that's so important here not to get off my timeline of what i'm trying to do here but let me just expound on that real fast why does that matter okay let's say that you're testing twice a week and it takes a day and a half to get the results or whatever and i don't know what the exact turnaround is but let's say you test everyone on thursday and by saturday morning you know that everyone was was uh, negative well what's to say that one of those kids didn't wander off friday and come into contact with the virus and now he's an uncontrolled variable in the field that you don't even know is infected and boom that's your spread if you're testing everybody every day before they even get on the practice field or the game field and you know with a high degree of certainty whatever margin for error this testing machine has that no one on this field is carrying the virus then there's nothing to spread and that assuages any concerns you have about the virus or about myocarditis Again, if, if you're not spreading anything, then you don't have to worry about the long-term effects of myocarditis or anything else. So that's why the testing advances and the rapid result testing is so pivotal in all this. And it gets glossed over by some, but it's, it's really a driving force in everything that's happened here. That said, the Big Ten also was very aggressive from within. And without that, I don't think that they changed. And without the Big Ten changing, the Pac-12 doesn't change. So... Let me just kind of breeze through this timeline, and then we'll get back into the discussion. As of last weekend, we kind of know the Big Ten is on the brink of doing this. By Tuesday, you see the Pac-12 start to mobilize. You see USC football players come together for a very well-crafted and polished letter, open letter to Governor Gavin Newsom, saying, we want to play. Give us a chance to play. Amon Ross St. Brown is the one that first put it out there. Keaton Slovis comes along with his own comment. A lot of the players and coaches on the team retweet it. It gets a ton of play. And to me, it was about timing and leverage. If they had done this a month and a half ago, it would have fallen on deaf ears because they couldn't have touted the Quidel partnership in the testing. And they didn't have the leverage of the Big Ten making its move and setting the Pac-12 up for to be left left out in the cold. So they had the reinforcement of the testing. They had the leverage of the Big Ten's movement. And now you have the players from around the conference speaking up at once. Because after the USC letter went out, you saw kids from Oregon and Cal and, and Arizona uh, join the course and make sure that that message was heard. What, one, one little point there. Uh, yeah. That you said uh, it would have fallen on deaf ears. You're right that in Larry Scott would have been like, ah, I'm not having that. If, if, if there was uproar internally a month ago, yes, Larry Scott would have kind of brushed it aside. But to your point about the Big Ten, that pressure from within a month ago, six weeks ago, is ultimately, like you said, what forced the Big Ten's hand now or yesterday yeah. to take action. So that is what's interesting to me is a month ago – if Clay Helton had done what Ryan Day did at Ohio State and said, no, Larry Scott, we want to play. We want to play. Instead, Clay Helton went, we're supporting our commissioner. We're supporting our commissioner. I get it. That's his boss in a weird kind of connection way. But that's the choice Clay Helton took and players took and coaches took. They took the supportive nature of their conference. I totally get it. Can't blame them. Probably would have done the same thing. But if they had taken the, the route Ryan Day did and put the pressure from within, we might be in a different spot right now where they are playing games. And so you talk about initial reactions. That's something that hit me in a kind of unsettling, kind of ironic way is, well, wait a sec, you guys were supportive a month ago, and now you're seeing games on TV, and so you're kind of flipping the script. I get it. I, I probably would have been the same way as a player, but it's just a different approach than some of the Ohio State guys took and as a result the end result is just different and it could have been a lot different if uh they had taken a different course a month ago yeah and a lot of people share that opinion um i, I don't and, and i'll go back to it again so the pac-12 was facing a different obstacle than the big 10 the big 10 had no states or true or counties true. posing the obstacle that the state of california and oregon to a lesser degree and L.A. County and, and, the, and the Bay Area counties were posing. Those were major obstacles. 
And Gavin Newsom and L.A. County health officials probably don't care what Clay Helton thinks about the virus and 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 everything else. So I, I don't think it would have been effective personally. The one the I one think, thing I'll say right there is you're right. Gavin Newsom doesn't care about Clay Helton as much, but Gavin Newsom sounds like he's on speed dial with Larry Scott these past couple of days. <laughs> and Larry Scott cares what Clay Helton thinks at least a little bit. So you're right. The connection is not direct line, but like you said, I love your internal pressure comment. The more the more you have that backing, could have could have made an impact. But point taken for sure. Yeah, I think the Big Ten was in a more conducive spot to to, to be heard all along, and and that the fact that they they started early, they were loud, and they kept it going definitely made a difference. It definitely made all the impact to where they are now. Um, they had a few less obstacles in place. The Pac-12 was kind of constrained and didn't have clearance for half of its teams to even practice. So, I mean, can, is it really a choice? Can you really say, well, we're going we're gonna to have the season, but half our teams can't even practice? And we'll get into more of that. So, again, I, I hate to be painted as an apologist or a defender of, of the uh, ever-polarizing uh, Larry Scott in the Pac-12, but I, I do just kind of see the facts and the dominoes as they are. And this testing wasn't going to yep. be available conference-wide until the end of this month. In fact, when the decision was made, I mean, we talked in the last podcast, about like, what was going to be different in January versus August? Yeah. And, and I had sources telling me we're going to have advanced testing sometime this fall. And they, they didn't know when it was coming. The, the initial thought was it was going to be later in the fall, maybe late October, November. It was able to come together much quicker to the point where it's supposed to be here by the end of this month, and that was the game changer. And I just... I'm just going to keep restating that. Without that, we are not here. That is now here. That's allowed everything else to happen. So anyways, on the timeline, you have the, the players speaking up. Then Wednesday morning comes around. Gavin Newsom talks to Larry Scott. There's then a press conference with Gavin Newsom where he is asked about why can't the Pac-12 play football? Is, is the state <laughs> going to consider? Yeah. And he... <laughs> Uh, he kind of puts himself in a really tough position because he comes out and says something that was a little disingenuous. And he, and he, and he, he says uh, the, the, the state of California is not prohibiting the Pac-12 from playing football. It's a mischaracterization. That's wrong. The Pac-12 has, has nothing standing in its way to play football. Well, that, that wasn't the case because the state guidelines, which he referenced, very clearly state that teams cannot practice in more than groups of 12, and that those groups cannot intermingle with each other. And you can't have football practice with 12 guys at a time and prepare for a season. You just can't do it. So it's just a little... Under that qualification, it, is, practice it the same, is practice the same as games? Like, the, the wording is practice. Like, can you have, yeah, you know? It, 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 it was very confusing because he was very clearly saying they can have games. We're not telling them they can't have yeah. games. But yet there was these guidelines about practice where you can only practice in groups of 12 or less. And uh, it was very confusing. So he throws out these comments that don't make really any sense in the press conference because we all have – we're all reporting on what the guideline actually says. Then John Wilner, the Bay Area News Group, who's the most dogged Pac-12 reporter out there, finally gets in touch with a California state health official about what can Pac-12 teams actually do or not do. And the guys, the guy or gal, it wasn't quoted, it was a off-the-record source, says, well, they can, they can have five-on-five -five practice. They can practice against air. They can do virtual reality practice. And it just really accentuates the ridiculousness of what Gavin Newsom had said earlier uh, and trying to paint this as, oh, we're not standing in their way. They, they, can, they can practice against air. They can have five-on-five -five practice. Like, no, like that's, that's not how football works. So, yes, you are standing in the way. So there's a lot of backlash and flack that comes off that. And this is all happening so fast in real time. It's fascinating how quickly this, this all materialized. Well, what happens? Gavin Newsom then gets on the phone and reaches out to USC. And then, I guess, talks to Larry Scott again and essentially tells Larry Scott, per the reporting that's out there, that we will uh, we'll work on the on the practice guidelines. We won't stand in the way from having contact practices and, and everything else. 
So this all gets done basically by a very well-concerted and mobilized approach by the players on Tuesday, getting that message and word out there to the point where that where Gavin Newsom would be asked about it at this press conference. Gavin Newsom then says stuff that does not go over well and is quickly criticized widely and heavily for being out of touch with reality. And I'm assuming that that, that public perception is what prompts him to then have further conversations with, with the Pac-12 and with USC and to, within one day, uh, change the limitations that were in place. And then that leaves the final step, which is L.A. County, which I had heard all along was an even bigger obstacle than the state for USC and UCLA to get the clearances needed. Well, USC AD Mike Bone and UCLA AD Martin Jarman, as reported by John Wilner and the L.A. Times' Ryan Karchi, get, come, join forces and say, we're going to make this happen. They get on a joint Zoom call with L.A. County health officials, and by the end of that call, they have clearances from the county too. So in a span of hours, all, all of these obstacles are undone step by step. And if you think that all that stuff happened coincidentally or by happenstance, I think, I think you're wrong. I think we're going to find out in time that there was a very strategic overall plan by USC and whoever else involved to get this done. Once the Big Ten had made clear that it was coming back, I think that there was a very strategic plan of saying, how can we most effectively get our season back? And it was, let's get the players' voices heard. Let's make sure that the governor hears us. Let's make sure that he's then asked about it at his press conference. Let's then team up and make sure that L.A. County is hearing from USC and UCLA together. I, I just think a lot of credit's probably due to the – the leaders of those schools and maybe some other schools involved for taking the charge on this and maybe even giving the conference a, a kick in the butt to say, hey, let's let's get this done. Yeah, without a doubt. I think uh, you hit the nail on the head with everything in terms of the updates. Uh, yeah, in terms of Gavin Newsom's comments, uh, it was funny to me, right? He says, oh, you can pack us in goops at 12. And he like literally acknowledges it in his interview. He's like, yeah, it's feasible for basketball might be a little trickier for for football right. like i don't forget exactly the words he used but he literally like acknowledges it in his press conference like yeah wait a sec that might be a little tough um but yeah that that cutoff number of 12 uh makes it tough and sitting here just kind of thinking about all the factors what would be interesting if the cutoff number was and i don't want to go down a total rabbit hole but if the cutoff number was 16 instead of 12 hear me out guys 16 you could do a very solid football practice. This is what I'm this is where I'm at. 16 allows you to do 9 on 7, which is for those of you guys that don't know the terms, that's a full run drill that has everyone, the seven guys on offense, the nine guys on defense that need to be part of all run schemes. 16 allows you to have that cutoff. Don't get don't get me wrong. Obviously it's not ideal. Obviously it's not 22, but if you had to get creative and it was just a little bit bit more, 16 allows you to do 9 on 7. 16 allows you to do seven on seven for all the quarterbacks and receivers and running backs so you could at least get work in. Don't get me wrong, the logistics would be a nightmare. But that was just something kind of me sitting here saying, if the cutoff was just four more, it might be a little bit different conversation where Gavin Newsom says, all right, guys, let, 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 me, let, let, me, let me force you to, to kind of get creative. But uh, outside of that, you hit the head, the nail on the head with, uh, with Gavin Newsom's comments. Two things stuck out to me with the USC football player letter that was out there. And you, like you said, it was, it was strategically crafted. It was very well versed. I'm sure they had all the writing tutors downstairs in JMC looked that, looked that over, but there was, <laughs> there was two yep. points that stuck out to me because it was kind of like, uh, it kind of went, went against uh, each other. In the first paragraph, it says, we don't understand why we can't play or words to that effect. And to me, it's very crystal clear why they can't play. The Pac-12 has taken a cautious approach to say, hey, we are, we are looking at the long-term health and the, potent- and, the, and the health impacts of COVID. We do not want to take that risk. That is why Pac-12 players are not playing. The Pac-12 commissioner, Larry, Larry Scott, in, in, in accordance with the state guidelines and whatnot, do not want to take that risk because if one person... Uh, if one person gets 
serious health implications, then that means, and potentially like death if we go that far, that means that that is end game, that is terrible, that is bad ball. That is the approach that Pac-12 is playing. That is why football can't be played and other conferences have taken a different approach. So I think it's a lazy comment when, when and a lot of people are saying this, we don't know why we can't play. Well, no, it's very crystal clear that it's literally taking a different approach to the dynamic. And then later, in like the third or fourth paragraph, that same letter, it says, and I quote, we respect the careful and cautious approach you, being uh, Gavin Newsom, have taken to college athletics, and we have the utmost confidence that we can partner together to quickly develop a plan that allows us to compete in the 2020 football season. But So they're literally acknowledging the fact that they are respecting the fact that Gavin Newsom, Larry Scott are taking a careful approach. That's why they can't play, is the, is the Pac-12 has taken that cautious, careful approach. So uh, it was a little bit uh, – the, the points kind of countered each other, which I just kind of – it hit me a little different inside. But uh, like you said, a carefully crafted approach with Clay Helton, with USC football, with, uh, with Mike Bone, and uh, the pressure is mounting on the state of California. And I think they, the, the closing line is perfect. As the, as the state of California goes, the Pac-12 conference goes. And once those uh, legislations or the guidelines lighten up a bit – uh, that's going to be the first domino to fall for us to have a, a Pac-12 football season. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think I think their frustration, the players' frustration, was was seeing the Big Ten now joining the cause and coming back, and they're saying we've done everything you've asked of us. Our testing numbers are good. We're following the protocols. We're watching the NFL teams in the state play football, and there's still these state and county restrictions on us that we can't even put a helmet on. Uh, we can't even. Uh, be in our locker room we can't even have a full practice and uh, you know here again just to summarize everything I was saying before I I don't think that anyone involved the the Pac-12 was not proactive in any way here certainly not it was very reactive to the Big Ten but I think once it was thrust into this predicament this week I think you have to give some credit to and I'm going to say that the USC athletic department officials who really seemed to spearhead this. I mean, give the players credit for getting the ball rolling, but then Mike Bone and Martin Jarman at UCLA getting on the phone with, with the county and just making sure that all the check, the boxes on the checklist were checked and this got done. I think that once they were put in the predicament, there was a pretty good response, but definitely not a proactive response from the conference in any way. Let's segue on to the ramifications. And I guess just to close up the timeline, the last order of business is, of course, deciding on when the season's going to start, how long it's going to be, etc. The Pac-12 CEOs are due to meet Friday uh, to discuss all that. So hopefully by the end of Friday or sometime this weekend, we know officially there was a Pac-12 season starting on X date, encompassing X. Now, what are those Xs? Max, <laughs> this is the real question. And this is where, even though it's great that the Pac-12 is back on track, it's still in a very unadvantageous position, disadvantageous, unideal, yeah. unideal position where it, just simple math, it's going to play fewer games than anybody else. And I'm going to run through what the other conferences are doing and tell you what I think is likely for the Pac-12. The SEC obviously is starting next week. They're playing 10 games plus the conference championship game on December 19th. The ACC has already started they're playing 11 games plus the conference championship game on either December 12th or the 19th. The Big 12 has already started. They're playing 10 games. Again, December 19th championship game, I think, or the 12th. Uh, the, the Big 10 is coming back with an 8 plus 1. They're playing 8 games and a Big 10 championship game on December 19th. And then the rest of the conference is going to play a consolation matchup that same weekend. Where does that leave the Pac-12? The Pac-12 needs to prepare for a season. Um, I don't think there's any way that they can start on that same October 24th weekend that the Big Ten is. That's that's five weeks away. We're just now getting to the point of saying, okay, we're going to try and do this. We have no schedule in place. We, have, we don't have teams practicing or training. Um, I think at the earliest, they're going to start have to start a week later. And if not that, then two weeks later. Uh, we've seen different reports. Uh, Heather Dennis at ESPN said October 31st was possible. Pete Thamel at Yahoo said November 7th is probably more likely. 
Well, do the math and work backwards. If the Pac-12 wants to be considered for the college football playoff, it has to be wrapping up that same weekend as the other conferences because the final playoff rankings are coming out December 20th. So that, that's why all those leagues are going to finish on that December 19th weekend. So if the Pac-12 wants to be considered for the playoff, it has to be on that same end track. So if you work backwards and they start a week later than the Big Ten, you're talking about a seven-game season. If they start two weeks later, you're talking about a six-game season. And how is that going to be viewed by the college football playoff committee relative to a 10-team, a 10-game SEC schedule, a 10-game ACC schedule, etc.? I think it puts the Pac-12 at a real disadvantage. Right with you. Obviously, lots to unpack there, and the scheduling aspect is uh, is super interesting to kind of play the what if game. Here's kind of where I net out with it. Like you said, if the Big Ten, the Big Ten's in a rush to make things happen themselves right now, yesterday, two days before, to try to get their season in there. That's why they're trying to fit eight games in there, no bye weeks, and, and squeeze it in just before Christmas. Um, so if, if the Big Ten's rushing, then man, the Pac-12 is super behind the eight ball, and so. I'm very hesitant, or I'm I'm extremely doubtful that the uh, the pack can get a legitimate schedule in that time frame. I will say, a lot of people nationally were making a big deal about the Big Ten playing two less games or potentially three less games than the other major conferences uh, with their current lineup, assuming everything goes uh, as hand. That, to me, is not as big of a factor. Certainly, it's not ideal, but if you have an eight, let's say you have an eight no Ohio State versus a nine and one Notre Dame or a nine and one Texas, like, yes, those two more games, those are two more data points. But I think that's the beauty of having the human element. Obviously, it's not an ideal situation, but I think that decision is doable under that scenario. When you talk about the Pac-12 potentially having six games, that's where I'm like, yeah, that's a lost cause. I don't see a, a 6-0 and Oregon or a 6-0 and USC getting in over a 8-2 and Texas or something like that because you have to respect the other games that they have played. But that's kind of a side point there. I think that the, no, it's, the, yeah. the, the timing is on right now for the Pac-12 to make something happen. I will say I'm calling a little bit BS on the it takes six weeks to get a team ready to play on the field. I would say six weeks. I would say that makes sense if you had guys that were sitting at home right now on their couch playing video games and you're asking them to come all the way back with no workouts, their body is completely out of shape, then I'm like, all right, six weeks makes sense. But if push comes to shove and you say it's it's uh, the, 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 the season is on the line and you have to play, I think you can get it done in four weeks. I really do. Uh, you, you have some guys doing some things. I really think you can get it done in four weeks, which that kind of changes the dynamic, right? That makes the next 14 days, if that was how things were wired, that makes the next 14 days uh, a lot more pivotal because it allows you to potentially do the Big Ten program if you shorten that window of what it takes to play. Obviously, the more time, the better. Obviously, you, we've missed out on uh, on spring ball and a lot of the summer activities, so six weeks is ideal. But none of this is ideal, so everyone's trying to trying to make adjustments. So I do push back on that. The other thing that comes to mind for me, and let's say the Pac-12 misses this 2020 circuit, and it just doesn't happen, right? Or let me let me backtrack a little bit. Let's say the Pac-12 is on their own regardless, whether they start in November, whether they start in December, whether they start in February. Let's say the Pac-12 is on their own and there's no other conferences that they can align a championship with. To me, being optimistic here, what were the AAF and the XFL trying to do the past two or three years, right? They were trying to be the answer for spring football. They try, They were trying to put together an eight-team season uh, and, and be the answer for when the lull in sports, right, when we're waiting on baseball, basketball's not in full swing. They were trying to be the answer in January, or I guess February, March, and April. Well, why can't the Pac-12 do, be that? Don't get me wrong. I have my serious, serious doubts on that. It's obviously not ideal, but maybe the Pac-12 could fill that void and saying, hey, rather than trying to compete with the ACC Big Ten, or I guess rather than trying to compete with the CFP in November or uh, in November, December, and January, why don't we why, why don't we be the answer in January, February, March? Because we are 
on the West Coast. We don't have to battle the weather like Big Ten schools do. That could be a logistical nightmare. We do have sunny weather down in California. We could do something if it came to that point and be and take advantage of the void in football potentially. I still don't think it's ideal, but that's a little bit of the, the optimistic uh, gene in me, a little bit saying there, if rather than competing in December at that point, let's push it to January, and then you get into the whole – what happens to the 2021 season and all that stuff, and I'm aware of yeah, that, I, but uh, those are at least the factors that uh, that come up to mind to me. Well, I, I don't think they want any any part of not being viewed on par with the other Power Five conferences, and um, I, I'm I'm a hundred percent certain that on Friday we're going to find out the details of a pretty rapid start date, and I, I think that all oars are are rowing in the direction of let's get on track as quick as possible. Um, I, I want to get deeper into the, the player perspective that you can offer about getting ready for a season. But real quick on the schedule, I'm with you. It's going to be really hard for a six or seven game Pac-12 team to be in that conversation unless we find out that things don't go as smoothly as they have so far through the whole season and you have teams having to cancel games because of this. And um a team has 30 players that have that have to uh, quarantine and, and isolate, and they don't play eight or ten games. They they lose a couple. Maybe that levels the playing field a little bit. We'll see. Uh, definitely not ideal for the Pac-12, but at this point, I think just salvaging what they can out of the fall is important. And what kind of schedule should they have? I think it's paramount for the Pac-12 they're going to have any chance at having a share of the national spotlight. They've got to have USC and Oregon play. Um, you, you want to make sure that, that whatever teams you think are even on the fringe of the national conversation, that they're playing and that those games are on the record and that you can at least sell that. You could say, well, yeah, USC played Oregon. USC played Washington. USC played Arizona State, Utah. Um you don't want to have watch a Oregon case State where, go like six and zero oh and be like, yeah, <laughs> right, we're in it. <laughs> you don't want to. You don't want a case where your your strongest contender has a hollow schedule, a hollow record. Even even if it is six or seven games, you want it to be the most robust six or seven possible. So you don't want Oregon to to not play USC or Utah or or whatever. You, you want to make sure your best teams are all playing, and so you can put the best pitch possible to the playoff committee when that time comes okay let's get back to just the, the preparation point point. and pete thamel at yahoo had an interesting tweet on thursday morning that he thinks that the november 7th date's more likely as a start for the pac-12 because he's he's heard from sources that some teams haven't been working out i don't know how that's possible i mean correct me if i'm wrong here max but for the most part football players are training or working out in some capacity year-round when they're not playing. And I know that USC players have been working out since June. Uh, They've not been sitting on the couch. They've been going through strength training. They've been going through speed training. They've been going through individual drills more recently uh, now that they have 12 hours a week to work with the coaching staff. They've been doing stuff. So it's not you're not starting from a a sitting-down position. They've already been moving. And Clay Helton said last week that he thought four weeks at minimum would be enough. I think that that's going to be the number we settle on, a four-week ramp up. But just give us the player perspective on you're on the USC team right now. This news happens this week. Where are you physically? Where are your teammates? And and what has to happen before you can realistically play games? Yeah, where am I at personally? I don't mean to be cocky and, and, and all that, but <laughs> I, I'd be locked in, chomping at the bit, ready to go. But your to- your point is, is spot on. That's not how everyone's wired. There's a lot of guys on that USC roster, unless they had groundbreaking changes since I were there. Not a lot of guys, I shouldn't say that. There is a chunk of guys that they're having the time of their life playing video games and Xbox Live and uh, not having the, the locked-in nature that uh, you might normally have, and their body is probably taking, taking a hit as a result. That's not the masses, but it is a chunk of your roster, and I, I definitely think there's something to be said about that, and I definitely think that's why that six-week mark is why a lot of people are like kind of like that because it allows you to tr- truly, truly get in rhythm. Four weeks goes by in a, in a blink of an eye in a football schedule. But, uh, yeah, player perspective, I said this. 
we've done a podcast every month, and I've really said this for the past past couple months, is the player in me understands that there's a lot of unknowns with COVID, and there's it's, it's serious. There's people's lives that have been taken, but the data also says that it doesn't affect the masses. It's a small percentage. But for me, the USC player in me that's honest, trying to get to the NFL, trying to win a Heisman and do all that, I'll take that risk. My football career matters to me that much that I'll take the smaller risk that something could happen to play football. That would have always been my stance to get me on the field, especially you talk about like 2016 where that was kind of like my year at SC. That was supposed to be, but that was like the year I was loading up for. If this happened in 2016, I would have been like, I would have been, I would have been crushed. I'd have been devastated. And so I would, I would have been willing to make it happen. I'm sure there's a lot of guys on that roster that they want to just play ball, and it's absolute torture sitting on their couch watching other guys play. And I totally level with that and totally feel for those guys. And it makes sense why that letter is coming out now. It makes sense why guys like Amon Ross, St. Brown, and Keaton Slovers are leading the charge because these are football dudes, man, and they want to play ball. And by and large, most guys are ready and, and chomping at the bit to play. And there's a, a small pocket of guys that might be uh, struggling uh, once the pads get on to, to, to kind of find their wind and whatnot. And even with those guys, though, I mean, a normal training camp is a month long. So if we, if we give it a month, what are we, we really sacrificing? I mean, do you think we're going to see more injuries? Do you think we're going to see uh, true ramifications manifest from this? Or is it going to be pretty much get on track? If they have a month to fully practice – what are we missing here? Yeah, I mean, they have full, full months of practice. You're not missing a lot. I mean, they're, they're going to be able to get all the stuff uh, they, they need in, especially like a USC offense. I mean, it's the air raid. A lot of what they can do it, that you don't necessarily – like Stanford, like they need though that, that timing because they need – they have a lot of plays. They have a lot of personnel groups. They need that physicality. They need to be able to – teach the hitting and all that and as i say that out loud i know there's gonna be a lot of sc fans listening right now that say we need to learn how to hit we need to learn how to tackle all that stuff and i level with that don't get me wrong but i think at least the air raid being a huge backbone of the usc program i think that's advantageous to a shorter timeline relative to some other schools so uh at the end of the day I would not be surprised if guys like Keaton Slovis and Amon Ross St. Brown have been sneaking and, and, and getting routes in and doing some work there. So they'll probably hit the ground running, but every team's going to be different. And we've talked about this all off season. USC is in an advantageous spot in that they have a lot of guys returning. Not every team's like that. If you have a new signal caller, man, those reps are super precious. Uh, luckily, that's not USC's case. And um, hopefully they're in a favorable situation. Uh, once games start start uh, start firing away, yeah. So again, just on, on timeline, uh, we'll find out Friday what the Pac-12 CEOs vote and decide. And then again, I don't know if the Quidel testing machines are on these campuses. There was some talk that there was going to have to be a training period for how to use them. Um, I'm pretty confident we're not going to see practices until those machines are in place. That was a major again point of the of the selling point to getting over the hump with the state and county health authorities um maybe those are ready next week i don't know but whenever those are ready uh add four weeks and that's where i think we are and i I think that probably puts them at least a week behind the big 10 and obviously well behind the other conferences and we'll just see what, what happens one final topic max you mentioned a lot of players coming back unfortunately for usc this uh, delay to the season has cost them two of their best players, J2 Felly and Elijah Vera Tucker, their top D tackle, their top offensive lineman who was going to be their left tackle, are have already opted out of the season to focus on the NFL. And I wonder if there'll be any reconsideration to change that idea. Uh, you saw that Ohio State, Wyatt Davis, their offensive lineman, had opted out. And he's not coming back. Uh, once he saw that things were going to get on track, it made total sense for the linemen to opt out when the thought was a season was going to be months away and it was going to drag out into into March. Uh, that would affect their bodies and their ability to be physically ready for NFL mini camps and NFL training camp and everything else. So for the linemen, I totally made sense. Now that we're going to be playing much sooner, uh, at least per all expectations, I wonder if those guys reconsider if they haven't officially hired an agent yet, if they have, obviously that complicates things. 
but let's look at the football component. What is the fallout for USC not having those two on the field this fall? It's absolutely huge, um, especially I'll start with Elijah Vera Tucker. I mean, he was supposed to be the anchor, potentially moving outside to to tackle and, and, and helping out with depth there. That's a huge loss for SC. The In the last segment, I literally said they have a ton coming back. Well, what do they not have coming back is the offensive tackle spot. So that's a huge loss. And it's unfortunate because you lost Austin Jackson, which he could have potentially come back, came back. He made the right decision being a first-round pick to, to, to forego that extra season. But it's a group that was on the younger side last year. You would have hoped that guys could have stuck around to then be a mature group and take the next step. But with two, two additional guys leaving, that, leads, that leaves some huge, huge voids that uh, SC's got to answer to. And it's disappointing because with all the running backs USC has um, – I don't think the offensive line will take the next step, which is just obviously disappointing. With J2 Fele, I was very excited to see how things went for him. Uh, with Todd Orlando's defense, more of a 3-4 scheme, he would have got plugged at that 3-4 defensive end, which would have been a different spot for him. I think it would have been good for his stock to show that he could have operated in a different capacity, but I also think his product productivity would have dropped because it's just hard to be a 3-4 defensive end and put up stats. You're taking on a lot of double teams. You're taking on a lot of offensive line bodies, and especially with his pedigree, he would have garnered a lot of attention. So for him, for Tufele, I would expect him to keep on just going to the NFL because I think his stock – is he's not in a position to greatly, greatly improve his stock. He's been extremely productive. You kind of know what you're getting. He had a good year last year, great year last year. So for him, I, I think that the, the – and I don't even know him personally. That's a huge factor with both these guys. How do they operate just personally with their teammates, with their love for SC, with their want to be in college football? So it nets out differently for both these guys. Uh, and I think the loss for Vera Tucker is huge. And – We'll see. There's some been some big names the, the, this past week of guys who have elected to move on, impact players. And uh, usually you think impact players, you think skill players. For SC, two huge losses in the trenches, which guys that uh, if they were going to – if they're going to compete for a, uh, a conference championship, those guys, you uh, you need them to be kind of your cornerstones on, on, on the front seven on both sides. Yeah, I mean, uh, so I think – Logically, you're looking at Jalen McKenzie is probably the most likely option at left tackle. Uh, he was already going to be moving out from right guard to right tackle, where he played a little bit last year on the outside as well. Uh, big question mark. You know, he I thought he had some good moments. I thought he was inconsistent at times, and now he's at the most important spot, most likely. Uh, but really, who are the other options? It's uh, true freshman Cortland Ford or Jonah Monheim are the most likely of the incoming guys to be ready to compete for a role. And maybe Liam Jimmons is ready for a bigger role, but he was already making the transition from D-line to O-line, and is he ready to make the transition from guard to tackle? Uh, is, is, that, is that too accelerated of a, of a change? Uh, a lot of questions. I, it's, it's a major concern. I, I think that we're going to be talking about the O-line all season, and I, I do really like Tim Drevno as a coach, and I think he'll get the most out of him but I think he has a major challenge on his hands. But the good thing, Max, is that we have these football matters to discuss and debate and talk about now. And, <laughs> and we'll be doing a lot more stuff leading up to the season and kind of setting the stage for things. Hey, no doubt. Hopefully we get some X and O's talk rather than all the off-the-field talk, but yeah. it makes for some interesting, interesting content and always fun to talk all things USC. All right. Good stuff, Max. Thanks for joining us. And, uh, We'll be back to you in the near future with another podcast. Yes, but sir. Thanks, as always, thanks for Ryan. listening. Yeah. And thanks to the listeners, as always, for listening to the Trojan Talk podcast. <laughs>